my favorite thing about this is when you call me and you say, uh, after talking with Ted for over an hour, uh, I realized we didn't talk about the most important thing we were supposed to talk about. <laughs> tell me, tell me more about that. <laughs> well, it's not the most important thing by far, but it is a really cool <laughs> element of uh, motivational interviewing. I was like, hey, wait a minute. We didn't talk about that. Well, because you did, you sort of, and I think, I think when you listen to the episode, you go back and you think, okay, you, you start down that path. And he talks about like pre-contemplation, contemplation, the, this sort of stages. And I think you were trying to get him in there. You were trying to corral him into that conversation. And he had other plans. He had other plans. And you know what? When Ted's got other plans, I'll go with those plans. All right. So you're going to teach me some stuff here today. Uh, can you remind, because it's been a week, do you mind mm-hmm. setting, setting, just setting the table a little bit, reminding listeners coming to this fair afterthoughts as if we have some sort of a plan for this conversation? What is motivational interviewing? Can you do that first? Back in the late 70s, um, Prochaska and DiClemente got really interested in how they could explain why some folks were doing well after treatment and some folks were not. Why some folks would really take to it and some folks wouldn't. And they started getting interested in the stages of change. And those stages take you through the process of kind of your level of commitment, right? They start Mm -hmm. with pre-contemplation. You really haven't even started thinking about this. And if you're even talking about it, it's probably because somebody told you to. Right, right. And then you get to contemplation where you start getting interested in, man, maybe I need to make this change. Maybe it's, maybe I need to eat better or I need to stop drinking. If you get through contemplation, you get to a place of planning and preparation where you start just the beginning parts of taking steps. You're starting to look up phone numbers. You're thinking about who you might call. You might be already talking to somebody and you're you're considering what might happen next. You've decided you want to do it, but you've only just begun that process. Okay, before you say anything next, what what is it that usually is the, uh, well, usually I'm, I'm sure that's the wrong word, um, but is, is this kind of an awakening that people tend to have moving between these two stages? Or is it, is it just sort of an evolution? Do they just, are they just suddenly oozed upon by the universe and suddenly change their minds? Well, there are lots of different ways to get there, right? I mean, sometimes people move through those stages and in ways that you might even think of as quite distinct. And they spend Mm -hmm. a good long time in each one. Um, And there's always some backflow, as Ted and I talked about. The tide comes in in waves. Um, So, you know, we move back a little ways and then forward again. Um, You you called it backflow, I think, in the thing. And I got the word stuck in my head as backwash, which is a decidedly different thing. (laughs) But but honestly, it kind of (laughs) works. Right. It kind of works. <laughs> Sometimes we're all into our action and we're so ready to go. And then we backwash into then we backwash. What, what problem. I don't have a gross. problem. What was that? I couldn't understand. But as you were eating that glazed donut, what yeah, you just right. said, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Problem. So yeah, <laughs> no problem. Nothing to <laughs> see here. Sorry exactly. about that. Right. Whatever you were saying. Um, not that I know anything about glazed donuts. Um, <laughs> And, <laughs> and, and then sometimes we move forward quite quickly. Sometimes, you know, it's that moment where 
a doctor says, here's the deal, bud, like you're going to die if you don't change this. The thing that's sad and kind of incredible is that, as Ted pointed out, you know, only 10% of the people who come out of open heart surgery and are told, if you don't change this diet, that stopped heart won't start again, you know, Mm -hmm. only 10% of them succeed in making the change which tells us there is a lot of stuff that gets in the way of making changes we want to make. And not all of them, in fact, a whole lot of them are not conscious. We don't even know what's holding us back, why we can we can only get as far as thinking about it and can't seem to begin really taking action. All right. So these are that that gets me to a very a heart sick sort of a state of reality. What is the motivational interviewing part? The motivational interviewing part really is a way of being with people that does not involve confrontation, because what they found really clearly with the research is that the more people are confronted, the more they ultimately in direct ways or indirect ways and loud ways or quiet ways are ashamed for where they are now, the less likely they are to get to where they need to go, which is kind of amazing. Because so much of the change industry is built around confrontation. Even as Ted talked about, the confrontation of asking questions. That blew my mind. The, yeah, that'd be kind of a neat one to come back to. Um, and doesn't need to be considered super rigidly. It's, it's just, it's neat to know that mm-hmm. even questions turn out, even in the research, to be a part of what feels confrontive. So motivational interviewing ends up being a way to talk to people about the change they want to make and where they are in their process so that they can be where they are fully and finally finish that stage. Yeah, it it struck me hearing him talk about it, especially when he starts talking about how he, he coached football. Is that right? He coached like children, youth? It, yes, real- he was he was a, a, a teacher and was was often a coach for sports teams. And uh, yeah. he was a you know, a high school and college athlete himself and was a good athlete and but an incredibly gifted coach. But I can I can totally get that after hearing him yeah. talk about it. But it does strike me as comical imagining him, uh, you know, motivationally interviewing his way across a football field. I because the the act of healing to me has been for so long um, sort of overshadowed by the adversarial process. Like even you as a therapist, if, if my mental model of like a therapeutic intervention is adversarial. It's I'm talking to you and I'm helping you through this thing that is somehow poisonous to you and you probably don't even know it. And I'm going to talk around you to get you to see it. And I'm going to wrestle it out of you somehow. Right. Like the idea that as a participant in the therapeutic process, the role is naturally at some point going to lead to conflict. Yeah, I know. I Yeah, I'm sure other therapists are probably listening to this saying <laughs> that guy is a nincompoop. But but that's, you know, mental models are what they are. So that that was a thing that struck me about Ted and his and his process that uh, was pretty powerful. I think most good therapists would say either that guy just described very articulately what a whole lot of clients walk in with or why a whole lot of clients never come never go to therapy in the first place. Right. Yeah. And then the really introspective ones would say, he's got a point there. There is an element to it where sometimes when therapists are moving too fast, we can 
we can put in front of somebody something that scares them or that they feel ashamed about or that they aren't ready to change or that they really hate about themselves. Ted's message to everybody, whether they're working on with themselves or working with a a child of theirs or working with a pet or working with a client is if you really slow down, you don't have to do it that way. And it really helps them much more. The change is longer lasting and more solid and likely to stick and often actually comes faster. So we're starting with that process of pre-contemplation, then into contemplation and preparation and planning. Next is full-blown action. This is where they're really practicing this new behavior and somewhere in the three to six months range. That's where they've kind of just begun. And if they can continue that past the about six-month range, they start to call it maintenance. Because at this point, there's less, it's not a new thing that they're devoting enormous amount of energy toward. It's now become just, um, they're already in sixth gear and they're just cruising down the highway. And then we expect that commonly relapse, then whatever we're talking about, maybe it's food or it's alcohol or it's not yelling, whatever they're wanting to change. Whatever it is, it's backwash. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we get to the backwash part and we go, ah, what happened there? (laughs) And that's the place where we want to yell at ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the place where Ted would really like us not to. Uh, One of the things I feel like we were starting down this path in our conversation with Ted as he was teaching us about motivational interviewing. And he... Uh, we, you start talking about this area of kind of how it works. And, and I feel like we were going in a certain direction and then he had other plans. Uh, and so that's kind of how our conversation started this morning. You, you said, Hey, there's this really important thing. And I feel like we need to at least address it. (laughs) One thing I love about Ted and, and all these years of working with him is that he, he runs the full gamut from, um, very practical to just about mystical, right? Yeah. Uh, some of the time I have no idea how a change just happened. And some of the time I'm like, wow, that was a really actually very grounded way to walk through that. This piece of information that I want to share with everybody is something he's talked about for a long time that uh, starts as very practical and can move into the other in nice ways. And what he what he says is, there's a lot of research out there that shows there are three really important questions to ask somebody about any change they want to make. Let's say, uh, again, we're talking to a heart patient who's ready to change his diet or or is just, is thinking about changing his diet. If he's gotten past pre-contemplation and he's into really thinking about it, or really almost anywhere along the way, you can ask first, how important is it that you make this change on a scale of zero to 10? Let's say it's a heart patient and you've come out of surgery and you might have a new appreciation for the fact that, I don't know, you're alive. Right. In fact, yeah, you've got a family member who has had an experience like that not very long ago. So you could sort of imagine you're that person for a minute and answer these questions. (laughs) Sure. Right. Easy. (laughs) Okay. That's easy. So the first one is, how important is it that you make this change? And most heart patients coming out of surgery would say uh, 11, right? Yeah, right. The next question is, how ready are you to make this change? Right. So context is everything. If you're mm-hmm. sitting here and I'm just out of recovery, it's going to be another 11, right? I'm going to I'm gonna roll hard uh, yeah. on being ready for change. Yeah, you might. Or you might be thinking... 
I cannot tell you how badly I want to go home and plop down on the couch and rest after this terrible ordeal with yeah. a beer and a burger. God, that sounds good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so the readiness, right, gets challenged by by lots of things. Um, and we'll come back and we'll talk about kind of what do you do then? The third question is, how confident are you that you can make this change from zero to 10? Yeah, this this is the one that tests tests me, like even in putting myself in this, these other shoes, which is, you know, I, I can I can feel strongly about being ready to do all these things. But my history tells me like the weight of years on in my veins <laughs> tells me that uh, I am incapable of of doing this and I am terrified about it. Right. right. So it is, that's where I see like that 10, 10, zero or 10, 10, one that makes real intuitive sense to me. Right. Right. That experience of anxiety exists between, you know, one and 10. Like yeah. I live there. Yeah. What the research shows us apparently is that until all of those are at an, are at an eight or above, no matter how hard you try, you're not likely to make the change. Hmm. Now, that's really useful information. Yeah. Because you could fire somebody up and clearly they need to make the change. And you're a doctor sending the, this guy out the door and you've just given him a little pamphlet saying, eat only these things. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, no, I definitely need to do that. Yep, yeah, I, I'm no, on I get board. it, doc. Oh, yep, yep, I'm on board. I, I hear you. Right. But if you haven't asked in those three different ways, how important is it is usually the one we think we're asking, but then it's now, yeah, but how ready are you to start now? And the third one, how confident? If we don't know that all of those are at an eight or above, there's more work to do before they can even begin. Mm -hmm. Now, which of the three do you imagine is most highly correlated with successful change? <laughs> oh, I'm being quizzed. I I think it's going to be the third one. You have passed the test, Pete. Brilliant friend that you are. You nailed it in one go. Nailed it, in one. It is absolutely about the confidence. Yes. Which which is also why you can like people who are confident about a particular change can make easy change that they don't particularly feel very strongly about. Yeah. Right? You could have yeah. a one one ten and be able to just zip through life making change all the time. And sometimes when it's not quite so important, it's easier to be confident about. Surely. Right? Okay, I interrupted you. you. Know? I feel like you were about to tell me something grand. What's What's beautiful about each of these is that the answers to those questions will illuminate what's missing in their process, what's stuck. And it might help you understand why somebody is stuck in contemplation. Yep, I get that it's important. Yes, but you haven't made a call. That's true. Why not? I'm not sure. Something is in the way. Something's in the way. So you ask them these three questions and you get to realize, oh, wow, confidence is way low or readiness isn't there. Or they don't really understand yet why it's such a big freaking deal. Because I'll get sometimes folks are like, I know I could do that. Sure. I mean, I quit drinking before, man. It's not that oh, big a yeah. deal. I'll take yeah. 90 days or six months or whatever. And then I'm like, why would I do that? And they're not clear at all that there's a problem. And for somebody like that, you Wait, really so which can't is get... that an indicator for? Is that an indicator of the the middle one? 
readiness for change? I would say it's even more so an indicator of the importance. One gentleman I referred over to a colleague of mine who's quite skilled and thoughtful about this way of working, learned that his wife was really worried about him, that he was drinking too much and that he was getting really ragey when he would get drunk and that there was a problem. He said to him, I want to make sure that you're keeping your family safe, but I don't want you to stop drinking yet. And the guy was like, what? And he's like, I don't think we know enough yet about, I don't think you're totally clear that this is a problem yet. And he didn't want him to lose this thing that was a defense. It was a way that he was regulating himself for now. He didn't want to break that down before the guy was really ready. And the first thing that did was to sell the guy on feeling really safe because he expected to get lectured or confronted or confronted, shown yeah. to be embarrassed, right? Like he, the, he, he was just sure there was going to be some version of what a bad guy he really is. Now, his rage wasn't violent. He just would get blustery and angry and, you know, it was, it was a mess. Um, yeah. And he was making other dumb choices when he was drunk. He wasn't driving drunk. This wasn't like an emergency like that. This was the kind of drinking where, so my, my colleague said, first thing I want you to do though is I don't want you to stop yet. What I would like you to do is just be writing down every time you drink. I want you to write down also uh, what you drank, why you might've enjoyed it, and what you probably would have been feeling if, if you hadn't. And that was it. And once this guy started to realize oh, every time it's because I'm scared or I'm anxious or I'm angry or whatever it was for him. And every time this is how it goes afterward and so on. He started to realize this isn't working, <laughs> right? That wonderful phrase, it's hard to get enough of what almost works. <laughs> I've never right? heard that before. <laughs> and it's close, cousin. You can't get enough of what you don't need. Yeah. <laughs> right. How have I never heard these? I need new tattoos. <laughs> these are fantastic, right? Like when what I really need is a snack, I can go grab some chips or, you know, a few Cheetos and a handful or something will do the trick. When I, what I really needed was a hug, I'll get elbow deep into that bag. And still the only reason I've stopped is because I ran out or I made myself feel sick. So back to this gentleman, he started to realize, oh man, I don't like how this is going and it's not meeting the need I think it's going to meet. It's supposed to make me feel less anxious, I realize, but I keep feeling worse. It's supposed to make me feel better about myself. I drink when I'm ashamed, but then afterward, I feel more ashamed. He started to realize, so the importance grew greatly when he just got a little bit more aware. Now, had he been instructed on why it's important and just told, you know, you have to change this because your wife's going to leave you or whatever? Yeah. I think he would have bought it on one level, but not on the other. He wouldn't have actually been ready. Yeah. Like, what is that level? It's like fight or flight. Suddenly you're confronted and you your choices become binary. Right. I mean, so I'm going getting... to be super angry and like storm off. Right. Or I end up being, you know, letting the alcohol influence other behavior. Or he's going to try really, really hard and one more time fail and not yeah. know why. Right. Right. Um. Once he started realizing how important it was, 
and he started realizing this isn't giving me what I need, he started to feel a whole lot more ready. And then that number grew greatly. But you're raising one of the hardest ones, which is what do you do when somebody already gets, this is super important. And yeah, I'm totally ready to go, except for one thing, which is I have no belief that I'm going to succeed. Yeah. So then we have to just like really back up, you know, and sort that one out. With that first one, if somebody isn't sure it's important, and think about if you're listening out there, like what's a change you're considering making? And ask yourself those three questions. How important is it that I do this? And how ready am I? And how confident am I that I can complete this change on a scale from zero to 10? If your important one is low, you might ask some questions of yourself like this. Gently, please, gently. Well, what do I want from this change? What concerns me about this current state of affairs? If I don't change, what's likely to happen? And if I do change, what's likely to happen? What good might come from that? These are all questions that start to stimulate an awareness of the importance of this. I The, the one you said earlier keeps sticking with me, which is having this gentleman write down what would I be feeling like if I didn't have that drink? Right. Well, that starts to give you some idea also of what might be in the way. I mean, I think about that, like, what what might I be feeling like if I didn't eat the next bag of chips? Right. Like, straight, straight up. So even if it's really important, you may not be really ready because you haven't found another way to meet that need. Yeah. And I love Ted's idea that there are no parts of you that are trying to hurt you. They're trying to help. So the part of you that wants to, you know, have 12 beers tonight, not you, but somebody, is probably trying to help you manage feelings you don't know what to do with or something like that. So let's talk about those. How ready are you to complete it? Well, if you're not quite ready, we need to respect that and slow down, see what's needed there. So you might ask questions like, what resources do you have inside or around you? or in the people who care about you who could help this happen. Sometimes we're not ready because we need something from someone first. I need some yeah. time for this, or I need, I need some help. I might need treatment uh, in the case of addiction. We might ask, you know, is there something that needs to happen first? We got to watch out a little bit because this is a great place we we all throw up smoke screens for ourselves. Yep, definitely going to stop eating that way as soon as the holidays are over. Yeah, right, cuz I know the holidays are going to be they're just it's hard. Everybody brings gluten. What are you going to do? Like I'll just that first Monday in January, it'll be a whole new me. <laughs> right. I never said that before in my life. <laughs> never. <laughs> And what I would like to say to people is instead of calling bullshit, which is what we love to do when we catch ourselves yeah. making up excuses, is like, slow down and give yourself a little credit. Some part of you is scared. Some yeah. part of you needs, needs something. Some part of you may be really scared to fail. Scared of well, temptation. You, Who knows? You said something earlier, like we do, we do these things because we have feelings we don't know what to do with. And it strikes me, it takes me right back to the other tattoo I'm getting on my back from Dave Rico, which is uh, happiness is not a reward and um, grief is not a punishment. 
pain is not yeah. a punishment, right? Like that, exactly. that feels like it addresses some of that gray area of what we are seeking or running from is that we're trying to yeah. put ourselves in a place where we don't feel judged. We're running from the, the, that state of that internal state of feeling like we're punishing ourselves or being punished by the world, or we are trying to seek something that just makes us feel good for a minute. Yeah. Sometimes, exactly. We're not ready because, well, let's, before even Dave, let's go back to Ben's stuff from yeah. that episode one. Ben's just saying, hey, you know, a lot of times we're having feelings we don't know we can have. And we're trying to avoid them any way we can. Or we're trying to control them. So we're living in this sort of cycle of avoidance and control. We're trying to manage feelings that aren't going away. And this is where we get into this problem of you can't get enough of what you don't need. So we slow down to have some of those feelings and get interested in what are the stories I'm telling myself? You just mentioned one there. If I have to change my diet, it's because I'm being controlled. Or we might ask, what am I remembering in my body that I'm not even aware of in my head? Like, maybe I'm going back to a time in my life when... I've encountered this before. And the earlier in your life, the more likely it's had a really deep, deep effect on you. And we might ask, what else was going on then? Maybe that's something good to talk with somebody about, a friend or a spouse or a therapist or something. And then sometimes, like, we're finding what we're really not ready for in making this change is we're not ready to encounter some of the givens that Dave talked about. So... What were those? These are, Everything changes and ends. Yep. Things do not always go according to plan. Life is not always fair. <laughs> Pain is part of life. And people are not loving and loyal all the time. Yeah. So sometimes I'm not ready to encounter that. And this behavior I have over here has been really helpful in managing my feelings about those givens. Yeah, I can't accept, at least in my internal universe, that things aren't always rosy. I'm not ready to accept that the, the grievance of, of existence sometimes sits right in front of me. That comes up. And a lot of the behaviors we want to change, if it's a behavior thing that we're looking at changing, come up or can be about that. And motivational interviewing is, is really, we're largely looking, you know, in this interview with Ted at the, at change we are choosing to make or hoping to make, wanting to make, needing to make, as opposed to the kind of change that comes upon us, you know, through something we couldn't control like death or loss. Sure. I, um, can I pivot for a second? I just want to make sure we also get to that third question of how confident are we, we can do it. Yeah, because I, th I think these are related um, that the, the thing that is that I, I find myself just sort of resonating with right now is like I understand those first two. But doesn't this get to the backwash? Right. I think if I'm putting myself in a position of like listening to this, listening to us talk, what I'm what I'm thinking is every time I flow back out to sea, when I try to make change, when I try to will the tide in. Uh, I, I actually feel myself losing confidence for the next attempt, right? 
let's say I started at a four or a five or a six and I was feeling great and then I failed and I guarantee you the next time I try it, I'm a three. And so how do you, how do you navigate that? If you're sitting out there listening, my, my big question is how do I start to refill the vessel of energy to get myself back to, you know, trying to, to build that confidence up? Yeah. I think Ted might say the first thing we need to do is fully plan on it. Oh, gross. Right. So (laughs) I don't wait a minute. Here's something every every therapist loves to hear. Dodge, I don't want (laughs) to. Exactly. And I don't blame you. Yeah. (laughs) I don't blame you. That doesn't mean then that we have to go through with every relapse, but we're going to have to get to that. We're going to have to expect there are going to be days where we at least flow back far enough to wish we could. If this is a change that there has, you know, been lots and lots of effort toward and, and what feel like failures in the past, some of that is we need to just pause and say, do you get how normal that is? I can't remember what the latest stats are now on how many rounds of treatment somebody normally needs before they finish um, drinking for good. Um, But I do know that uh, I think the average 30-day treatment um, inpatient treatment has only maybe a 10% success rate. And unless they stay for 90 days, uh, which is really apparently the magic number, they're not likely to to finish it on the first go. They're probably going to relapse and need to do this again. If they can do 90 all at once, then the success rate is enormously higher. It's 80 or 90%. It's incredible. Um, and, and that's just drinking. And that's an easy one to point to because the motivational interviewing world revolves around that. But a piece of it then would be like to say, so I might ask you this. Think about for a moment how many other people in the world have chosen to make a change in, let's say, eating and screwed up somewhere along the way? Okay. Would you guess that that's a low percentage or a high percentage? I'm going of to the guess people? that's a high percentage. Yeah. <laughs> Answering so exactly. quickly you can't breathe. <laughs> Extremely quickly. And now try this. How many, would you guess, of the uh, people who ultimately succeed and making an imperfect but solid change in the way they eat have failed along the way, have relapsed at some point and eaten the wrong thing. A high percentage. Yeah, a high percentage. So you're still in the camp of folks who are well on your way to succeeding. Oh, man. The difference is of the folks who don't ultimately succeed, they got really discouraged and felt very ashamed and stopped trying. Yeah, right. And the folks who were like, "Ah, see what I do there. I'm halfway into a cookie. I promised myself I wasn't going to eat. What am I doing with this thing in my hand? Weird. Yeah. But don't beat the hell out of themselves and say, this isn't actually what I want. And what did I really want? Because there was something in there you really wanted. It was probably comfort. (laughs) It might have been safety. It might have been for your body to remember a time in your life when you could eat anything you wanted and that was an easier time. I mean, there could be all kinds of things that you really needed. 
And the next thing you know, it's a cookie, yeah. right? Yeah, of course. So what he would say is, so like if the tide comes in at waves, we've got to expect there's going to be some backflow, maybe not all the way to actually scarfing the entire bag, because maybe the, the only difference we made this time was we ate half the bag and we stopped. We went, wait, I'm doing this thing again. That would be progress right there. Mm-hmm. And maybe then it's a third of the bag. Instead of saying, see, look at this. I can't stick to a diet at all. You'd say, I'm getting closer all the time. I, I see I, I see where the work I see where the work is <laughs> the practice mm-hmm. and um I feel the I don't wanna it feels like ugh but the cookies just make it easy the cookies make it so much fun yeah for a little bit and at least it's a little bit but I can always have another cookie and make it a little bit longer <laughs> I'm, I am I am speaking in metaphor I don't eat that many cookies I believe you I I right. I, I, to- I get that and so what Ted would want to do there is to not talk you into yeah but you would yeah. say, okay, yeah, so maybe cookies are the answer. Right. How's that working for you? As, you know, Dr. Phil that, loves to and, say. That's the big, yes, how's that working for you? That's the big, that's the big answer. Because the thing that I can touch, the thing that I can put my, I can experience, right? That physical sensation is what I feel like when I'm not gorged on a bag of cookies. Yeah. I. That's why I love that, that last question so, so much. Because I ate the cookies. And I was happy for a little while, and now I feel sick. And once I can connect those two things together, you know, I, family, lots of lots of uh, celiac disease in my family, right? I mean, it's just legendary. It's like we're the thinking Godfather family, you know, of celiac disease. And and so I, I my mother told me one time, and and this has really stuck with me that. Um, Because, you know, she used to love cake like she was a cake hound, a real cake hound. (laughs) Sounds like she was the sharks and the jets and the cake hounds. And uh, and she and I asked her, you know, years into this, I said, what is it that like enabled you to stop eating cake and bread and all these wonderful goodies? And she said, when I was able to connect the fact that if I eat a piece of cake, I'll be in bed for 60 straight days. It is poison. To me. And for many years, I had no idea what that connection was. I couldn't make it. And so I would keep eating breads and cookies and I would feel sick and I would have to go to the Mayo Clinic and I would have to like there are things that 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 experience I could never connect those two in in my heart of hearts, in my in my brain. I could never make that connection between eating this thing poisons my body and makes me deeply sick. And once I was able to make that change. Some years into a battle with celiac disease, it it evaporated. She now it is she looks at a piece of cake and it and sees a doorknob. Like, why would you eat a doorknob? You yeah. know, it would make you it would be uncomfortable. Right. So like those that that is the that's the thing to me that I think I keep hearing, which is like that. What is it that I can touch? Because uh, my therapist years and years ago said your power ends with your skin. It ends with your experience. You can't control others unless you reach out and manhandle them. You know, like you can't you your power in the universe ends with what you can touch and feel and experience. And that's that's what for me, that was a big connection. Yeah. From Ted's conversation and yours here. Yeah. Um, that that physical experience is a, is an important indicator. Yeah. So if I were working, if you and I were talking about your confidence that you could, let's say, um, do what your mom has done, 
And I don't know mm-hmm. if, if that's something your body needs and if that's hard for you, but it is for a whole lot of people. My whole family has gone gluten-free. And uh, for my wife, that was an almost overnight decision when she realized, oh my God, migraines and immense GI distress have always been about gluten. She was like, got it, poison, stop. It took a lot longer for me. I had to go gluten-free and then go back off and then gluten-free and then back off and then go back and forth before I was like, wow, I really feel a lot worse this way than I do the other way. And instantly, like instantly, right? Yeah. For me, because you can be allergic to gluten in three different ways, I don't have a a gut allergy to gluten. It doesn't make my stomach feel bad. So I couldn't figure that one out and I don't get migraines. What I Mm -hmm. do have is the skin allergy. And so I have lots of scars from all the acne I've experienced in my life, that deep cystic kind. Anybody out there who's experiencing cystic acne, I can tell you, very likely related to gluten. Quit it for two weeks, three weeks, and see what happens. See see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Good friend of ours came to me and was just like, dude, how did you change that finally in your life? Because I'm still experiencing this at 45 years old. And I was like, it's gluten, dude. He's like, no way. Yep, it is. Just quit it for one month. Give me a call. And it, yep, next time I saw him, the face was perfect. First time I'd ever known him to not have that. Um, once I realized that, then I realized, oh, got it, poison. And isn't that, the, that's the same connection for like alcohol and gambling and like any addiction, anything that you're trying to purge from your system, right? Like anything that ends up making you feel sick until you realize that, if I would, if I notice that I feel better when I don't do this thing, I am not motivated to stop doing this thing. Like you, we, <laughs> we have to notice this is actually, it's, yeah. we, it, it promises to make me feel better, but the feeling better doesn't last very long. I get to the other end of the cookie and then I hate myself a little more or I don't like so how I better have a cookie <laughs> or a Rice Krispie treat trademark. No, I mean, <laughs> well, we got to at least address that, right? We'd have to yeah, get right. to there. So I started to say, if you were yeah. working on this in your life and the big thing was confidence, and that's usually where we get stuck. Yeah. Like once we're totally right. sold on, yep, got to do it. And and there's nothing in the way of me doing it, except I think I'm going to fail and it will feel terrible. We have to then start looking for like evidence that we have succeeded in the past and an idea of what success might mean here. In the 12-step world, the famous phrase is progress, not perfection. Really helps folks realize, like, I'm not going to get this all at once. Just progress. What I think I've heard you just say a minute ago was you've had the experience of realizing, oh, that feels terrible. I don't want to do that anymore and stopping doing it. So it may be completely yeah. unrelated to food. Maybe you've had the experience of like some people have succeeded, let's say in budgeting, right? And they realize right. all of that spending out there that used to make me feel good, I realize actually makes me feel freaking terrible. I'd like to change that because I don't want to poison myself and my family anymore. And then they succeed in making that. And they're like, okay, so that wasn't just easy and it wasn't perfect. But the more I closed in on progress, the better and better I have felt. Right. And anymore, if that were one of your areas, you'd probably be able to say, yeah, 
whipping out the credit card and buying a bunch of stuff I don't really need doesn't feel good like it used to feel. I'm just going to get home and say, see, I screwed up the budget. I'm taking all that back. If you are, uh, you'll know you're in that cycle. If you're one of those people who speaking from just a little bit of experience who uh, realizes, oh my God, I am spending too much on stuff I don't need. I guess I'm going to start buying a bunch of gifts for people now, (laughs) right? At least, at least my will for generosity uh, is going to make me feel a little bit better about all that spending, right? Mm -hmm. That's like, that's the, you're in the middle of a cycle that ultimately will make you feel worse. But uh, all of these things, food, I get it. Like, I get it. I, I get it. Yeah. This is good. Yep. I learned something today. So if we're working on the confidence piece, we'd be looking at then like, where have I made that A change in the past of any kind? And as Ted talked about, finding your, chin, your change template is helpful. So the way he would start to address that is to just say, and this is the really practical side of Ted, great. How did that work last time? Well, let's see. Uh, What I had changed in the past was exercising. I had an exercise buddy. I knew I needed an appointment and I had somebody, you know, who kept me accountable and I started small enough that it didn't feel terrible um, and that made it manageable. Great. Okay, so now we're going to apply that to food. We're going to need somebody who helps you stay accountable. We're going to start with small changes, not make them all at once. We're going to da-da-da-da-da. Super practical. But some of the time also, we'd have to look at things like prior failures we haven't really forgiven ourselves for. And we'd have to look at maybe a voice in the head that feels like, you know, some part of our past that comes forward and screams, eat it anyway! Well, and that's interesting because you just described like the change template is that's the template I'm trying to build against. Right. Because the template right now is the eat it anyway template. Right. Well, that you do know what I'm saying? But that's the that's the stuck template. Yeah, that's what I mean. But that's like how hard it is. Uh, template the word template has no meaning to me anymore. (laughs) I've said it too many template template. Uh, uh, So. Uh, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I totally get what you're saying. I get what, like those, but it, it just echoes how hard it is to, to make those changes when those, when you're so stuck with that tape. Yeah, I really get that. As, as you know, and actually this is one thing we have in common. You and I both learned transcendental meditation as young people. How old were young you? People. Do you remember? I don't know, 15, 16. Oh my God, so early. It's amazing. I learned at 19. And one of the things they talk about is the absolute inevitability that you're going to forget to be hear your mantra and you're going to wander off into your thoughts. And they would say, that's fantastic. No problem. That is a release at some level of stress. What's really important is that you notice. And when you notice, you just gently come back to your mantra. Well, That ends up being a useful analogy in my mind for the change process, no matter what. It's my shame, usually, that makes me never try again once I feel like I've fallen off the wagon, uh, as it were. For me, that doesn't happen to be substances so much as other things. But man, do we all have some areas we need to change. So I have to kind of come back to the mantra, as it were, just sort of come back. And the sooner I come back, the better. Any other big things that stood out to you about the talk with Ted that you, you know, wanna... uh, I think we got the ones that have been sticking with me. But I, I think it's this is one of those talks that you know, if you're listening, 
go back and listen to it again. Like if you're feeling low, just listen to that guy's voice. It, yeah. it bums me out a little bit that he was on his, yeah. how we talked to him. Cause I want, I, I feel like I, I want him. I'm an audio guy. So it bug, bugs me out, but I, I feel like you can, it, it is a, it's such a powerful conversation to hear the way he ties so many of these things together in such a peaceful way. Uh, a non-judgmental way. Um, like if, yeah. if you're one of those people who lives with the word should in your brain all the time, like this was, this was a great thing because every one of, of his sort of lessons of your dialogues um, really addresses the fact that I spend too much time walking in should. I should do this. I should do that. I shouldn't do this. Yeah. I shouldn't eat that cookie. Like this is, this is a non-should related way to move through the world and i i found it if if you don't like i feel like if i didn't walk away with any concrete lessons what i do walk away with is a feeling of sort of aspirational growth like i the the world the universe is is lighter in weight on my shoulders when i start thinking about the way he approaches non-confrontational growth coming up um a little ways down the line is going to be a great conversation with um carlene britton uh who's a wonderful gestalt, gestalt therapist and professor. And she's going to talk about something that is, is right up our alley for this show. Uh, it's, it's gestalt's uh, paradoxical theory of change that is all about the more you make peace with where you are, the more free you are to change. And Ted has probably never once read a single thing about the paradoxical theory of change in Gestalt's world, but he works with it masterfully all the time. And he was teaching us some cool stuff about that. And some of that was just his ultimate uh, conclusion, which is that the antidote to all of these things that don't work very well, confrontation, praise, questioning, um, pushing, shaming ourselves, all of that stuff is listening. And I really loved his exercise at the end there, that that sort of notion of ultimate listening, like really hearing yourself differently, because in a way, it lets you join with what is first. It really helps me every time I'm with Ted to, to catch myself after that when I find myself listening quickly, when I think I know where they're going, when I think I can finish their sentence, when I think I already know what would help, when I want to help really bad, when I want to say that thing that would really fix it, make that suggestion. We need like a whole, we do need a whole episode on what you just said. Yeah. And I do it to myself all the time. There I go again, I would say. This is great stuff. That's great stuff. Wishing for the world out there that we all could just a little at a time, progress, not perfection. Um, meet ourselves where we are. Trust ourselves a little more. Good work. Love you, B. I love you, bud. <laughs>